Hello and welcome to another episode of What is Rewilding Anyway? Today I've come up to the University of Leeds Geography Department where I'm speaking to Dr Steve Carver, an academic here at the University and also the Director of the Wildland Research Institute which looks to see how we can make our own landscape just a little bit more wilder. But that's enough for me and from now on I'll let Steve uh, introduce yourself, your background and how you came into the rewilding scene. Yeah, thanks Peter. Yeah, uh, as you say, I'm director of the Wildland Research Institute here at the University of Leeds. It's kind of nominally based at Leeds, but it is a global institute. We have members all over the world and it's open to anybody who's interested in that particular field. Um, my background is a geographer with interests in spatial sciences, so geographic information systems, so spatial analysis, computer models, mapping. And uh, my PhD was on citing nuclear waste disposal facilities. Nothing to do with rewilding, but uh, my well, interest. Well, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, you could you could say that. I mean, that's that is a link, and there's, a, there's also a link with Ennerdale because mm. that's just over the hill from um, um, from Sellafield, mm. uh, and I'm on the advisory panel for the Wild Ennerdale project. Uh, but that's the story. Um, so after my PhD, uh, my my personal hobbies and interests uh, about really about enjoying wild places. So uh, ski mountaineering, rock climbing, mountain biking, just whittled us trekking really. And so I had all of these data sets laid around for population density and distance from nearest road and conservation areas and land cover and all of these things to do with nuclear waste disposal. Uh, sighting of those kind of facilities and I just thought do I really, really want to do this for the rest of my academic career mm. and although I still retain an interest in that I thought no I want <laughs> to do something which overlaps with my uh, my um, my hobbies and my interests so I just started rearranging some of the uh, factors so instead of looking for places close to roads and railways I started looking for places a long way from roads and railways and, and I drew some of the first wilderness maps, uh, certainly the first wilderness quality map for the UK, although there is no real wilderness here, I was looking for all of the places which were remote and had near natural land cover uh, and very few uh, human influences, but then we've expanded that uh, analysis to, to Europe, we've done the European uh, Union Wilderness Quality Index and we've worked also in the United States. And we're just starting to work in China. I've got, a, I've got a, a visiting scholar here for a year from China, and this is in preparation for Wild 11, which is the World Wilderness Congress, which will be in China, hopefully in 2019. Mm. So that's how I kind of came into it. I started mapping. Uh, and from the mapping side, obviously, it draws you into uh, some of the ecological as well as the landscape uh, implications mm. about wilderness and wildland. And of course, recently, um, this this whole notion of rewilding has come about. But it's 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 actually a, a long history of rewilding at Leeds because we were, we I, I I got some money from the ESRC, Economic and Social Research Council, um, to uh, look at the question of wilderness Britain and landscape and ecological perspectives. Um, and we started talking about rewilding then, and that was. When was that? That was 98 to 2000. Mm. Uh, I remember posting the application just as I was going off on a, an expedition to Greenland at Glasgow mm. Airport. It's the last thing I did before I left the country was posting the application. Anyway, we won that award and we had a two-year um, research seminar looking at the question of wilderness Britain um, and uh, is there any? And, uh, mm. and, and we came to very much to, to the early conclusion that no, there wasn't. Mm. 
but there was the opportunity to look at areas which we might consider rewilding. We didn't necessarily call it rewilding at the time, but essentially that's what we were talking about yeah, in yeah. terms of ecological restoration. Mm. So actually, in terms of rewilding in Britain, um, you say we can't necessarily have any wilderness, but what kind of wildland uh, could we potentially have here based on some of the work we're doing? And maybe compared to, say, Europe, for example, where population densities and other economic factors can be relatively similar. Yeah. Well, if we actually look at it for the first point in terms of geographical areas that we've, we've mapped, there are actually quite a lot of, surprisingly, a, a lot of remote and uh, seemingly on the surface, at least anyway, wild areas, uh, particularly in obviously the highlands of Scotland, mm. but also in northern England and, and Wales. You know, We've done some mapping on that for Scottish Natural Heritage and some of the work we've done there is actually now Scottish uh, planning policy. It's, uh, it's in, in the statutes um, as guidance documents. We're also doing work with Natural Resources Wales and a little bit with Natural England. Mm. Um, so you can look at the, the areas which you already have wild landscapes. I'd say they're not wilderness because no. they have had a long history of, uh, of human influence and modification. Mm. But if you start looking at those areas, uh, particularly those areas which are extremely marginal in agricultural terms, um, and the, if you look at the whole en environmental ecological balance sheet, um, areas where we're putting a lot of subsidies into to maintain a farm landscape, we might potentially consider the total balance sheet and there might be more uh, economic benefit uh, and environmental benefit in terms of ecosystem service delivery uh, to the wider population through looking at making those landscapes a little wilder. Mm. So, and the kind of benefits I'm thinking about is not just about the economic return from farming the land and producing food or forest products, but from flood protection, uh, water quality, uh, erosion control, uh, nutrient cycling, mm. uh, carbon storage and sequestration, the, the, the full budget, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess the obviously, obvious lead on from that in the context of the UK is the social aspect of it, and that, you know, we come to the old chestnut of the cultural landscape, and even though these areas where, you know, economically, they're pretty much on a margin, it's almost like a lifestyle and almost an inherited, inherent need to sort of get some economic bonus mm. from the land that is deep saying communities. Uh, and what sort of challenges have you found with that and how can we yeah, get, accomplish that within a absolutely, cultural you know, wild landscape you know, at the same I in, time? I get in a lot of discussions about that. I mean, I'm from a country sort of, well, okay, my, my father always used to say I come from a long line of slaves and you know, that was basically farm labourers. Yeah, yeah. um, so, you know, I am from that kind of a background myself, um, although, you know, I've, I've never worked in, uh, in agriculture. Yeah, I, I, I fully understand that, um, but you know, I quite often say that the only constant is change itself, mm. and uh, you know, I think under, you know, landscapes need to change and they need to adapt. And you know, I've I've never said, and I've always said this to to to, to rewilding detractors that nobody wants to rewild everywhere. Mm. You know, we can't do that. You know, the, one of the most important things about land is it provides us with space to make a living and produce food you know and I like mm. my food as much as the <laughs> next man uh, and beer as well um, and for that we need land um, mm. and we need productive land mm. but there are uh, segments of the landscape or areas of the land um, where we might consider alternative futures uh, and there might be better bang for our buck in terms of considering rewilding mm. now that is naturally going to make 
have some implications for these cultural landscapes. Mm. So, you know, I'm, I wouldn't say we will get rid of upland hill farming. Um, I think there's different ways of doing it. Uh, mm. And there's a uh, farm not far from us uh, here in the Upper Wharf uh, at uh, Nettlegill Farm, um, uh, sorry, Netherfield Farm, uh, where the farmer there has found that he can uh, improve his economic returns by actually having less sheep. So he re mm. reduced his flock from, I get the figures right, about 300 to about 40. Um, and you think, well, how's that going to increase his income? Well, actually, it does it by reducing his fixed overheads. Mm. So having fewer sheep leave, means using less diesel and uh, less uh, management yeah. and the veterinary costs are an awful lot lower, etc. So it's sheep are healthier um, and the landscape benefits from mm. it as well. So there's none of the, uh, the negative impacts associated with our sheep densities. So mm. the woodland flora is coming back in his, uh, in, in his, in his woodlots wood and he's, he's uh, diversifying into environmental uh, schemes and, uh, and providing uh, uh, teaching space for local schools and Natural England uses uh, his teaching barn for their meetings and all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, you know he's he's showing how it can change and how it mm. can how it can work. Mm. And one of the places uh, I've been introduced to online by um, would love to have gone there, but unfortunately the weather's a little bit inclement at the moment. Is the Scar Close site, um, which uses an example of the self-willed land. And can you just explore a little bit about that idea yeah. and that? Measure how we could sure. explore yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, just <clears throat> just for the listeners, Scar Close is a is a limestone pavement uh, in the Yorkshire Dales. It's part of the Ingleborough Nature Reserve uh, uh, mosaic, uh, you know, network of nature reserves, which are managed by um, Natural England and the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust. And Scar Close is interesting as a as a, an example of <clears throat> how biodiversity can benefit from. Um, Passive rewilding. It's not entirely passive rewilding, but it's mm. a kind of rewilding where they've simply put a fence around this area and kept grazing livestock out. Now, it is grazed uh, by deer and by rabbits and, and, and other small herbivores, um, so it's not entirely without a grazing pressure. But if you compare it to the next door nature reserve, which is also limestone pavement, it's a very similar size, it's at the same altitude and the same aspect. Uh, virtually next door to each other and this is a nature reserve called Souter Scales which is managed by um, the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust. Now the Yorkshire Wildlife Trust uh, maintain a conservation grazing regime with some sheep and some cattle on that land, to, uh, that limestone pavement, to um, maintain it under this favourable conservation status which is uh, um, you know it, it, it's a it's a desi you know it's a, it's a, a you know biodiversity uh, targets which are uh, based on uh, the two 2000 etc uh, and they attract a payment for that they attract through the agri-environment scheme they attract a high level scheme payment for that and I can't remember exactly what it is but it's just quite a substantial amount of mm. money um, whereas Natural England Reserve at Scar Close they fog on that and just mm. say okay let's put a fence around it and see what happens now Scar Close has had grazing excluded from it for 40 years now. Mm. Um, Souter Scales has this minimal conservation grazing regime on it. Um, and Scar Close has nearly 250 different plant species on it. Mm. Um, and it's 
the biomass is huge. It's mm. alive with uh, with with bird song and insect noise in the summer. I mean, the best time mm. to go would be course, would yeah. be June time, yeah. uh, uh, springtime. Um, Cypress scales, on the other hand, has only 50 species. Mm. They, they're all hiding down in the grikes, you know, mm. these, these cracks between the blocks and the limestone pavement where the, the sheep and the cattle can't get at them. Mm. And there's a definite browse line. There's a few trees on uh, Sauter scales, um, but there's a definite browse line, mm. whereas Scarclose is, uh, uh, is, is a riot of vegetation, and particularly in June, it's amazing. Mm. Flowers and, uh, uh, and, uh, and the vegetation there is amazing. Mm. Um, so there's a good example of you know, one nature reserve which is managed under conservation grazing and agricultural pressure, mm. ostensibly to keep it in the con good, uh, good uh, conservation status for which it was originally designated as a nature mm. reserve, which is um, calcareous grassland. Mm. Uh, and another, next R, which you know, is... Uh, it's busy, busy rewilding. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's an amazing place. I mean, mm. you can you can kind of get lost in there amongst the <laughs> trees and the vegetation growing up. It's not big enough, um, but it's uh, the, the the flowers and the, mm. the, the variety in there is is really amazing. If you then go outside of both of these nature reserves into the limestone pavement areas, which are normally grazed by a local farmer, there's virtually nothing. There's mm. there's, there's there's a there's a close crop grass sward. That's mm. it. Yep. Well, I mean, I must get out there in the summer, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And so from that, the idea of the rewilding spectrum as well. Mm. Uh, so can you uh, briefly explain for listeners the spectrum rewilding as the... Yeah, I mean, you can look works. at... I mean, this, is, this, this harks back to uh, the work that I've been doing on mapping wilderness quality. Mm. Uh, and if you take any area anywhere in the world with a boundary around it, you can, you can use uh, indicator... Uh, variables such as remoteness from road, naturalness of the land cover, absence of modern human artifacts, population density, ruggedness, whatever you want to, however you want to define wildness. And then combining those together, you can then create uh, a map which shows a continuum or a spectrum between, um, like the colours of the rainbow, mm. um, between the least wild and the most wild. So if you take a country like the UK, the least wild place is probably somewhere in central London, let's say, and the most wild place, well, it's, it's somewhere up in the, the northwest highlands of Scotland. Mm. Um, and everywhere has a, a, a value a con on that spectrum in between. Now, if you then think about that spectrum from, from indoor urban to, you know, sort of wild land at the other end of the uh, spectrum, uh, then rewilding fits along, somewhere along that spectrum which says, okay, we have an existing uh, condition and we just have a plan, perhaps, to make it a little bit wilder. Mm. Now, whether that includes um, extensive grazing practices or reinstating um, a river to its floodplain or whatever, you know, these are mm. uh, restoration processes. But I then sort of start thinking a little bit about that, you know, and if you try to apply the, the, the name rewilding to anything which just pushes uh, the, um, uh, the condition a little bit further towards that wild end of the spectrum, then it's neither night nor summit, as we would say in Yorkshire. Mm. Um, so there is a, you know, there are some definite bounds to what I would consider rewilding. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I've kind of coined the term rewilding light and rewilding <laughs> max. Now... Examples like um, 
well, the classic one a lot of people mention is Nepa State in, mm. in, 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 the, in Sussex. Sussex? Suffolk? Uh, Sus- Sussex, yeah. yeah I don't, that, that part of the world's a bit of, you know, I'm a northerner, you know, that part yeah, right. of the world's a bit. Yeah. Uh, but somewhere down there. Um, it's a, an example which is used a lot as a good mm. example of rewilding. I put that definitely in the rewilding light camp because mm. uh, the landowner there, Charlie Burrell, uh, has taken the decision to move away from uh, arable and dairy farming and move to this extensive grazing regime where mm. he's got some you know, old breed cattle, I think they're longhorns, and some Tamworth pigs, and some, uh, I think they're red deer. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he's allowing them free range over certain sectors of his land uh, and see what happens. Um, and so he's, he's not managing his hedgerows, he's got an open gate policy, so the cattle can pretty much come and go wherever they want in those, in those compartments. Uh, and that's had interesting effects. Um, it's scrubbing up, there are some trees growing up, um, there's been an increase in certain wildlife species apparently, um, you know, butterflies and birds and things like that, it's all, you know, all very nice. Um, and it, it kind of looks nice, you know, it looks a little bit like the Serengeti, you know, that kind mm. of landscape. But Charlie still has to decide how many cattle he takes off that land, mm. so he's got to actually sit down and decide what he wants. Mm. So if he takes uh, a lot of cattle off and leaves only a few, um, you know, farming it as meat, um, then that will allow regeneration of the woodland and it'll turn to uh, closed canopy woodland. Mm. If he allows the cattle to reproduce naturally and and expand the herd to a level which exceeds the capacity of the land for tree regeneration, in other words, the cattle eat all of the young trees, he'll end up with grassland. Mm. So he's got to make that decision as to what he wants. And as far as I understand it, he's looking at somewhere in the middle, which is this kind of wood pasty type uh, landscape. Uh, And so there's a human intervention goes into there. So Mm. it's not... It's not nature deciding exactly what's going to happen. Mm. There are natural processes going on there. Grazing is a natural process, but there's a human decision-making mm. as well in mm. terms of the number of cattle, the number of pigs, the number of red deer, where they are at a particular point in time, when they were introduced, and how they are then managed. Mm. And without a top-level predatory pressure uh, to do that for us, because it's too small a landscape. I think it's about 5,000 hectares. Mm. 5,000 hectares, 5,000 acres, I can't remember exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's roughly that size. Um, is, uh, you know, it's too small an area for a large predator. So human intervention is necessary. And that's obviously the case with a lot of rewilding sites. You know, they are too small um, for us to reintroduce large predators mm. to. Um, and so... You either uh, allow passive rewilding to take place with the naturalistic grazing or a natural grazing pressure and then manage somehow, or, or not the case may be, the numbers of herbivores, or you step in and you make some, uh, some changes yourself. Mm. And so, where were we going with this? I can't remember. But we, you know, it was, it <laughs> yeah, was looking at the spectrum, basically. Looking at the spectrum, ideas, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, a rewilding max. Uh, example would be where you've got a sufficiently large area um, where you can really you really can step back and let nature take all of the decisions and if that's successful at some point in the future you might well consider reintroducing uh, a predatory pressure into that landscape 
Um, and the most obvious one in terms of the UK, um, and I know there's been some difficulties with this, and naturally there will be, is, is the Eurasian links. Although some people have said actually perhaps the Iberian links might be better because with climate warming, then mm. uh, you know, that, that's a, a, yeah. a, a warm adapted species. But difficult to have been a rabbit predator, not a deer predator. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of yeah. Takes away the point. That's yeah. it. Well, we have a lot of rabbits, <laughs> yeah. which needs. It's true, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, but uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, we come to the concluding point of every interview. Um, and well, um, it's up to you as to how you go about the answer, but the question is, what is rewilding anyway? What is rewilding yeah. anyway? Yeah, there's the uh, million dollar question. Yeah. Um, I always define it as giving uh, space and time uh, to nature for it to, so it can uh, define its own successional trajectory. Um, so this is stepping back and allowing nature to determine what happens. Now, what does happen might be a surprise. We might have to step in at some point and, let's say, control invasive species, or at some point in the future, uh, do some species control or reintroductions to give nature a helping hand. Um, so that would be an example of assisted uh, a rewilding, this active rewilding, if you like, stepping back entirely and do, just doing nothing and seeing what happens and being surprised and inspired by it. That's what I would call passive rewilding. So mm. that's my definition of rewilding. But, and there's always a but, mm -hmm. um, you need favourable land ownership mm. for this to happen. It cannot be forced on uh, society, communities as a top down approach. Mm. It can be facilitated by top, uh, enlightened top-down policies, and environmental and, uh, and uh, agricultural and other policies, uh, but it needs to happen bottom-up. Mm. Um, and you know, somewhere in the middle is a, there's always going to be a series of barriers. Uh, and what I find, what my pinned tweet says is that through my discussions about rewilding uh, and, and through discussions on social media is that some people don't like uh, rewilding because it implies a lack of control or a loss of control. Mm. Uh, and it's human nature that mm. we, we, we like to meddle, we like to control, we like things to be as we want them to be. Mm. And that's not what rewilding's about. It's allowing nature to determine what the future's like. Mm. That's brilliant. So, Steve Carver, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah.